This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. For decades now, we've had too few journalists of Māori, Pacifica and Asian origin in our newsrooms, and now there's a new publicly funded push to turn that around, backed by four media outlets with 11 others in support. So how will this work, and what's the end game? Also, we'll hear this week how some Australian media were straying from the facts about us this week. Why does she keep getting a pass? Are you living in this weird sort of one-party state where you're just simply not allowed to criticise dear leader? But first, did our media keep calm when COVID came to Christchurch? Holly, how are the people of Christchurch reacting to the news? Just about feels like we have uh, woken up from a dream to the reality that Delta is now in the South Island. We've had our crews out all morning garnering reaction from the public. That's News Hub reporter Holly Henry in Christchurch on a live News Hub special on Wednesday afternoon, ahead of an announcement from the government about its response to the news of two fresh COVID cases in the city. And Holly Henry went on to say their crews captured Christchurch people's anger about the unvaccinated pair travelling from Auckland and then moving around parts of the city while sick and not scanning in. And she said the citizens were reacting in other ways too, ahead of a possible lockdown. Well, uh, by the looks of the lines outside pharmacies and supermarkets today, I particularly outside supermarkets, again, buying things like toilet paper. Um, and uh, I think they're just getting prepared for uh, the government acting uh, very swiftly, like what we've seen in other cases uh, before. Well, in the end, the government didn't leap up an alert level, a big relief to businesses that depend on getting people through their doors, but not necessarily for those who found themselves locations of interest because they were visited by the sick pair, one of which was visited also by RNZ's Conan Young on Thursday. He found out the person had visited his store through the media, and when RNZ spoke to him, had yet to hear from health authorities. Well, it'd be nice to know what we have to do from here on, whether we can continue trading or we shut down. And, and so the um, person who was on here, you haven't had a chat to them yet? No, I know. Yeah, well, obviously she's got to stay away now. Well, a good job then that the media was on the case, in this case it seems. But Dave, the dairy owner, was pointing the finger of blame not at his COVID case customer, but at the powers that be. First off, I'm bloody peed off with the, uh, the government, as is just about everyone else that's been in the shop. But there's a lot of angry people in Christchurch. And Dave was far from the only one. Straight after that aired on RNZ National, public health expert Nick Wilson was telling Morning Report the Auckland border was way too loose, and he pointed the finger also at one particular industry. The government seems to have bent over to please the trucking industry and not really thought about the uh, the big issues of protecting the community. I mean, we're seeing... Uh, problems with this border every few days. Now by this point it had been revealed that one of the pair was an unvaccinated truckie, though on checkpoint the night before, COVID response minister Chris Hipkins told an insistent Lisa Owen he hadn't bent over backwards. Is the trucking industry pushing back on this? Is that what you're trying to tell us? Uh, no, not, not necessarily. Uh, but there are just some practical considerations to work Not through. necessarily, so a... Minister? So well, are you getting gonna... some pushback from the trucking industry about being vaccinated to cross the border? Oh, look, I think that, you know, there'll be people within the trucking industry who aren't keen on it. I haven't had any, to my knowledge, I haven't had any representations from representatives of the trucking industry saying that they would be opposed to it. Now, the minister's response there that this government is looking at making vaccination a requirement to cross regional boundaries for most travel 
didn't assuage the anger and disappointment in Christchurch. And as one of Christchurch's most well-known social media personalities pointed out in a TikTok video that went viral, it wasn't the first time in the South Island lately. I don't know how come you let COVID come down to the South Island when we were all those weeks without it. Unbelievable. So somebody flies from Hamilton to Blenheim. Why? I thought Air New Zealand wasn't going to take passengers unless they're double vaccinated. I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. And you know why? Because this government doesn't know anything anymore. Now, there was plenty more in that viral video from 20 Wax Karen from her Lazy Boy pulpit. And you can see why that rant went viral. But not everyone in Christchurch was losing their cool over the COVID crisis. RNZ's Conan Young found others in the city a lot more level-headed when pondering the plight of the latest cases. Deb Cartwright had just had her second jab, which she decided to bring forward after hearing the news there were cases in her community and had this message for the infected couple. Hope they've remembered all the places they've been, seeing as they haven't been scanning, and yeah, once they're better I hope they get vaccinated as well. It's a really difficult one. I mean, apart from cutting the North Island off from the South Island, how do we keep it out? And at the end of the day, we've all just got to get our vaccinations and get back to some form of freedom. And let's hope the media seek out cool heads like Debs in the days ahead. And Christchurch keeps calm and carries on now that COVID's come to town for the first time for more than a year. Having our own people tell our own stories and ask the questions that our communities want to hear is so vital. A newsroom should reflect all of society. I've been a journalist for more than 30 years and there hasn't been a day that I haven't felt privileged or proud to represent my people. Have you ever wondered what it would feel like to share your community's voice with the nation? This could be your moment, your launch pad to an exciting career. Go to www.thedithorjournalism.co.nz to find out more. The voices of broadcasters Stacey Morrison and Mike McRoberts there in ads that you might have seen recently during news and current affairs shows on some channels. They're promoting the Terito Journalism Project, a new collaboration between four media companies, NZME, News Hub, Fakata Māori, Māori Television and the Pacific Media Network. Now, as you heard there, the project is actively seeking trainee journalists to boost the diversity of New Zealand's newsrooms and eventually the news itself. And to better target younger candidates, there are also ads like this one on social media platforms as well. Use your words, your voice, and help us to tell Aotearoa's diverse stories. Become a Tereto cadet and earn while you train as a junior journalist. Experiencing all facets of journalism with four. Now, as the ad said there, these are paid positions and it's the public that's paying $2.4 million over two years to identify, train, develop, and hire 25 cadet journalists. The money is coming from the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which was introduced this year by the current government, and the fund is administered by the government's broadcasting funding agency, New Zealand On Air. And when the funding was announced back in July, I asked New Zealand On Air's head of journalism, Raywin Rash, why. There is an, uh, a huge need. At the moment, there is no institution in New Zealand that trains Māori journalists. And the training that we do have has been sort of funnelled into the, into three-year degrees. The number of applications that we had from the industry shows that they see an absolute need to not only uh, bring more people into the journalism sector, but also to train them 
we are having conversations with the journalism education sector to see, okay, so, you know, what's happening? Why is it that you are producing um, uh, graduates and yet the industry is still saying it's underserved? Māori journalism is completely um, at a crisis state. The only training really being offered to Māori journalists is via Māori TV, who managed to identify you know, some stars um, from Kura, bring them in and give them a little bit of training, and then they are poached. New Zealand on air head of journalism, Raywin Rash there, telling me back in July a publicly funded cadetship programme was needed now to fill gaps in training and in our newsrooms. But why has it got to this when Māori radio and TV broadcasters have been publicly funded for many years now and there's a separate Māori broadcasting funding agency, Tamai Paho? There are several journalism schools and tertiary courses around the country already, though not as many as there used to be, as well as internship programmes at the media companies themselves. Shortly, we'll hear from a leading journalism teacher who's dug deep into the record of our journalism schools and our media companies in this area, and we'll also hear from the just-appointed leader of the Torito Journalism Scheme. But first, the problem that the project is trying to address is a long-standing one in New Zealand's news media. Put simply, too few Māori and Pacific Island journalists for far too long. Auckland Star journalist Gary Wilson established the first cadetships and training courses after he realised there was almost no diversity at all around him back in the 1980s. I did a survey which revealed that less than 2% of New Zealand journalists were Māori or Pacific Islanders. And over just the course of six or seven years from those courses, um, there were nearly 80 young Māori and PIs who went into journalism. There was a talent there and there was a stepping stone to other courses that we set up, one at Wairiki and Rotorua and another one at um, Monaco. There's one sort of simple thing that can um, lead to spotting brown talent, nurturing and mentoring that talent into significant roles within the media. Gary Wilson talking to Media Watch in December last year. But even though Māori news and programming began to increase through the 1990s, that Manukau Polytechnic course he established was closed down in 1993. Now in 2005, his successor at the journalism training organisation, Jim Tucker, found 12% of current students at journalism schools around the country had a Māori background, and that was an improvement. But... Only 1.6% had a Pacific Island background and less than one in a hundred were of Asian origin. Little effective effort was being made to attract them into the media, Jim Tucker said at the time, and they turned again to Gary Wilson for help. Now he said that a Pacifica journalism school would help improve the flow of talent, but it didn't happen. Now, when Massey University journalism professor James Hollings analysed census data from 2006 and then conducted his own survey of New Zealand journalists, he found the trade still overwhelmingly European and Pākehā, even though Māori Television had launched two years earlier. In the following year, the Equal Employment Opportunities Commissioner Judy McGregor, a former newspaper editor, condemned the whole situation as embarrassing. And 12 years after that, when the original training pioneer Gary Wilson was honoured with the New Zealand Order of Merit for Services to Media last year, he didn't mince his words either. There's still a very white and largely ignorant mainstream media doing mostly a lousy job of covering Māori and Pacific issues, he said. 
There's a very fragmented and in many cases relatively amateur Māori and Pacific Island range of media organisations doing their best, he added, but the way they're overseen probably hasn't helped. It's three years since Tepuni Kōkiri, the Ministry of Māori Development, launched the Māori Media Sector Shift Review to revitalise and reorganise Māori media. A 2019 Cabinet paper noted there was no coordinated strategy for talent recruitment or development. A draft review, Tao Papaho Māori, Hearaho, was eventually launched by the former minister, Nanaia Mahuta, late last year. And she proposed a media centre of excellence for training to be located within Māori television and a single Māori news service there as well. But the rest of the Māori media sector and commentators panned the idea and now a new review is underway under another new Minister of Māori Development, Willie Jackson, himself a former broadcaster and boss at the urban Māori station Radio Wātea. So whatever changes this review will bring aren't exactly imminent. But in the meantime, the Tarito Journalism Cadetship Project is up and running and last week its first kaihotu was appointed, Isa Luamanu. I've been in media for the last 22 years. I was at Sky TV for 20 years in various roles in the content and acquisition team. Um, and recently I've been in content development at Oriana TV, which is a small Wellington radio um, TV station. And primarily being Samoan and studying at Te Wangana or Aotearoa recently, um, I wanted to give back to my community. And I believe in the kaupapa that the Te Rito Journalism Programme stands for. Yeah, and I've always wanted to be a journalist, but I was a little intimidated by the industry, um, partly because um, being Samoan, it's not one of those kind of usual industries or careers that we go into. So I'd love to be a part of a programme that supports this change for diverse voices. When people noted your appointment, was there was a little bit of surprise that it wasn't um, the name of a journalist. You know, they recognised, or someone who's track record in journalism, they recognised. I have reservations about applying for the role for that um, particular reason, that I didn't necessarily have a journalism background, um, but I do have this passion and, and love for it. Um, and more importantly, I think as, as being the programme lead, I suppose I have the opportunity to hire the right people to support those necessary elements in the programme. And what sort of people do you want? Who is it you want to see applications from? We welcome all who offer a diverse and inclusive voice. Um, and in honour of Te Tiriti or Waitangi, um, 10 cadets who will be required to speak Te Reo fluently and will be earmarked for the Māori and Iwi media. Uh, the remainder 15 cadets will come from diverse cross-section of Aotearoa four different media organisations. Um, you know, Māori Television, Whakata Māori is one of them that, that you mentioned there, but there's also News Hub uh, and NZME, uh, for example. So once they're picked, will they go straight into the, you know, the big newsrooms and be working on a whole range of news? We've hired seasoned journalist and trainer Eileen Cameron as our head trainer. Along with our team of trainers and newsroom leaders, each cadet will also have a mentor, um, and they'll be supported through the 11-week Whangana-style learning on journalism basics to their placements in our partner newsrooms for the remainder of the curriculum. And our goal is to create a hurutanga, or safe space, to ensure our cadets success in the programme. They won't be put in there d- directly. But in time, say, if we went, let's say, five years into the future after the commencement of the programme, if at least half or two-thirds aren't working in full-time journalism roles, would you be disappointed? As you well know, there's many different roles um, within these existing um, organisations or the 
collaboration that we've got as part of our partnerships. The aim is to get um, the majority of our cadets in as journalists, but if they manage to find roles elsewhere in the media organisations doing other roles, that's, that'll even be fantastic as well. Yeah, Raywin Rash, the head of journalism at New Zealand On Air, when she announced the Tirito uh, project, Back in July, she said, look, there are immediate gaps. There's a crisis now, she said, particularly in Māori journalism. What are the specific gaps you think that most urgently need to be filled and that, you know, Tirito cadets in time um, might be able to make a difference? Um, recently, we, you know, some of the issues that we had with uh, perception, I suppose, in some stories like the COVID outbreak and the Samoan AOG community cluster, um, a lot of the many early news stories were focused on low vaccination rates for Basfika, but it didn't offer context in that 60% of Basfika are under the age of 30 and weren't vaccinated due to the MOH strategy. Um, if you've broken it down by age groups, Basfika were almost aligned with um, Basfika, um, with um, Pakeha New Zealand. Um, and I suppose in terms of the gaps um, around contextual journalism and offering a well-balanced news space is essential in such cases of national interest, as we all know what happened later on with some prejudice overtures that followed. Um, there's also a gap in the unique storytelling that cultural perspectives can offer um, Teddy to definitely wants to kind of you know, resolve some of those issues. Yeah, I saw an interview you did with 531PI last week, and again, you pointed to that story you just mentioned there, the uh, Assembly of God of Samoa Church, and uh, the, the way that whole thing was reported. I know there was unhappiness about that. Is that even some of the, the organisations who are part of this project in the mainstream, where their reporting simply wasn't good enough? Yeah, I mean, it was one of the leading stories, and something because personally um, it affected, you know, people that I knew, um, you know, uh, Ainga and, and family, and it was quite a hurtful situation. I think it's really important to create, um, I suppose, an avenue for people to sort of understand uh, some of the data, getting that balance um, in terms of the information that's supplied and the context that can be offered, um, particularly in, in terms of offering a, a different perspective. Yeah, because on that story, I mean, specifically, if people don't know what we're talking about, there were uh, routine references to low vaccination rates among the church membership and even the, the wider community in which it was cited in Mangare, which turned out actually not to be true. What annoyed people, I think, was also no mention of the fact there were also quite well-advanced and organised community vaccination drives that were ongoing that weren't kind of mentioned. So a bit of an assumption that because of perhaps the location, the geography and ethnicity that um, then actually misled people who saw those stories. Oh, completely. And, you know, and if we can make a change in voicing those uh, different perspectives on there and actually giving a more balanced um, version of it, and, and that's why Tereto is really important to uh, improve those stories and we have them out in the newsrooms. But there's a problem, I guess, with this in a sense that it's coming from that Public Interest Journalism Fund. We know that the opposition parties don't support it. They've criticised it and said the government shouldn't be spending money on media. Are you worried about that there's only a two-year horizon for this? Yeah, I'm not, not particularly worried about it. I mean, I definitely can, you know, uh, understand the fact that it is, uh, TD2 is funded for only one year with a provision to apply for funding for the second year. So, um, and, and I suppose there's no change in the government during that time period. 
And more importantly, from the outset, our goal was to inject more diverse uh, voices into the media industry quickly, and the PIJ fund allows for that to happen. And um, we're confident that every cadet who meets the required standards will be employed in 2023. So if we at least have 15 new journalists by then, that's a fabulous result, considering it is a, a short-term um, project as such. And more, you know, and I suppose we've got a great team, um, you know, cross-section of partners, where we can um, hopefully sustain it without necessarily having that support at some point. So it's great that New Zealand on Air and Troop strongly believes in the project to support it for this time period in the meantime so that we can get um, cadets or diverse voices out in these um, newsrooms. Well, back in July when the funding was announced for this, the $2.4 million, uh, New Zealand on Air made a point of saying, look, around about 40% of this is specifically for projects that will benefit Māori journalism. I mean, there's a whole range of them um, here from, you know, just as one small example, um, Rotorua Weekender newspaper um, will have a, a weekly bilingual te reo Māori and English section. Um, Pakiwaha, the Waitea uh, news radio programme, uh, gets um, m- money to expand its itself as a breakfast and current affairs program for iwi radio stations there's a whole range but they will also require the people i wonder is it going to be difficult to attract you know graduates to a journalism program or applicants while at the same time the fund is also funding a lot of sort of mid-level journalism projects throughout the media it may be difficult to staff all of these things and it's something that's yet to be determined um, with all these initiatives that the you know, New Zealand there is um, trying to achieve through the fund. But I think over time, and, and maybe that's a thing with this quick injection across various um, Māori and um, Pasifika networks, um, and more importantly, that we do have this collaboration with mainstream broadcasters like News Hub and NZME, that we do see sustainability. The whole Māori media sector is under review. It went on for a couple of years, didn't appear to go anywhere. Now there's a new review under the new Minister of Māori Development, uh, and who knows what that will conclude. But you have people saying things need to change at Māori Television. You even have a producer like Bailey Mackey um, calling for Māori Television to be, in his words, put out of its misery and replaced with something new. So there are forces that really want to change in fundamental ways, the Māori media sector particularly. Um, Does it concern you that, whatever the cadets are coming into, the whole scope of the Māori media sector might be completely different in a couple of years if you know certain people in the industry and politicians get their way. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's always been discussions about reform in Māori media, but I think there will always be some sort of organisation to cater for um, te reo cadets and you know, specifically around Māori newsrooms because of the fact that we have to honour that aspect of the treaty. Whether it be in the form of Māori TV, uh, you know, that's something we definitely uh, want longevity in it. Reform and all that stuff, that's all open for um, public discussion and, and government debate. So that's not where Teddy Tools place is. Um, but we do hope that there will always be um, placements for the, our cadets uh, long term. You know, there's been great appetite and support at News Hub for real. Um, so it's really important that it isn't necessarily just specifically in those organisations, but you know, spread throughout um, mainstream media as well. But finally, Giza, applications open right now, and the commercials are out there running, uh, trying to get people to show an interest. Is there a particular deadline uh, that people need to look out for if they do want to be involved? 
We have a deadline, um, say, mid to end November. We're just um, keeping it open because we're mindful that with COVID, it's been quite a difficult time for, you know, many people to organise their lives. So we're thinking about having two intakes. There might be, we'll take a first lot um, this side of Christmas and then another lot just before the programme starts on the 7th of February. That was Gisa Luamanu, the first kaihotu of the Terito Journalism Project, billed as the country's first comprehensive Māori and Diverse Voices Journalism Cadetship Scheme, funded from the government's Public Interest Journalism Fund. Now, coincidentally, at about the same time the Terito scheme was unveiled, a long-serving journalism educator completed a long look at journalism education and its engagement with Te Ao Māori. Bernard Whelan is a tutor at Massey University's Journalism and Communication School who's taught at three other tertiary institutions as well down the years. And in July, he published a PhD thesis called He Whakanunu, Kairi Poata no Aotearoa, Journalism Education of This Place. So does he think the cadetship scheme will make a difference? It's a great development. Uh, it's going to provide a bridgehead for a significant number of Māori journalists in newsrooms and others not represented. It's only part of the fix for me. Mentoring is going to be utterly critical in this, but it's only for two years. What happens then? Going back to the great work of uh, Gary Wilson and others decades ago, there have been some efforts before, but it's more than having this group of people with a great mentor. It's the environment they go into, and that was the focus of my research in journalism education. Raywin Rash also said to us back in uh, July, no institution was training Māori journalists except for, she said, Māori television. I think later she qualified that by saying Radio Wātea, the urban Māori station in Auckland, was also doing a bit of that. Um, but she said, look, uh, this is, there's a crisis stage. Do you agree with her? Because I guess that would mean that journalism schools and internship programmes have kind of failed to deliver enough Māori, Pacific and other diverse voices into our newsrooms, into our industry. There are a few moving parts. Firstly, there's already 30 years of research, which basically shows Māori and others don't see themselves represented in media. So why why would they bother going into journalism school? That's our first battle. Uh, Every journalism school has been producing Māori graduates every year. Figures I was able to use showed uh, across several years was consistently about 10% on average. So yes, there could and should be more. The bigger issue is industry churn. Industry have to work out how to keep its talent in the environment. What do they have to do internally to make that happen? Well, what, what actually are the gaps in newsrooms and news media that Tereto cadets could most usefully fill? I mean, is it actually going into the Māori media organisations themselves, like Māori Television, that are supporters of this, or Pacific Media Network, or is it do you think it's more more important that, or just as important, they go to the likes of NZME, um, News Hub, which are also supporters of this, which are you know not specifically Māori media? In that context, because, because you're talking about mainstream, they'll be bringing different voices. They'll expand the context of every, every story, potentially, as I said. Uh, PhD research by Atakuhu Middleton, which came out last year, gives an insight into what journalism looks like when it's practised by Māori. Hence, I talk about the environment needing to change as well. But what sort of ways should journalism change to incorporate this? I mean, for example, some of the recruitment commercials and, and promotions for the Tarito project have people saying, I'm passionate about telling my stories 
um, of, and stories of my people who would not want their, their newsroom to be more reflective of current New Zealand society and, and who acknowledges that there's been a deficit in hiring, retaining, promoting uh, Māori and Pacific Island journalists. You know, you, you know, you'd be looking for journalists who will be able to report to all New Zealanders on all news issues and not a specific cultural background. So how can we incorporate both of those things? Is it a conflict? No, I don't think so. And I think this comes to the heart of what I'm talking about, Māori, and in fact, uh, other cultures have had to be bicultural for 180 years or more. It's actually the others of us, mainly Pākehā, right, who have not had to be bicultural. We're the ones who have to change or even transform. And so that's what we need to reflect uh, as media organisations and also as journalism schools. There are some absolutely fascinating uh, vignettes in your um, paper, your thesis, about or interviews with actual journalists. And I've just picked out one of them. This is um, just identified as Sam in the story. Um, Sam says, I really, really worry we don't attract enough Māori and Pacifica into journalism, and then we send them out there as almost lone practitioners in white newsrooms. It's a bruising experience. It isn't healthy. It isn't enough to hire one, two Māori reporters in the newsroom. I don't know what the threshold is, but a certain number or proportion of people you need to really make a difference to the culture of a place and for it to be really safe for those handful of reporters. That's why I think the environment needs to change, you know, to, to take it forward. So, yeah, so my focus is on that environment that that, that Tarito and other projects are going into. Because if those environments don't change, then even if there is further funding from Tarito, it's only going to have so much of an impact. Eight years ago, I finished my master's thesis, and it, which looked at leadership and learning in newsrooms. And that showed that there'd been a significant shift in the way newsroom leadership operated the way they looked after young journalists, one editor particularly made the point that they were taking more care. And I think we've, more recently, we've heard all more Tereo voices, more Pacific voices in media. All of that is great. So that's where I talk about promising signposts. But as I said, there are these, these gaps that still show are going to show up because the environments are not transformed enough, I suppose, to sustain... Uh, these um, young Māori journalists who may be coming in. That was Bernard Whelan, journalism educator at Massey University and author of He Whakanunu, Kairia Poata no Aotearoa, Journalism Education of This Place, a PhD thesis study of journalism's engagement with Te Ao Māori. And there he was talking to me about the newly unveiled Tirito Journalism Cadetship Scheme. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, as anyone who spends time online will know by now, the big social media sites and platforms are full of fact-free misinformation posted by the people who are using them. And COVID-19 has sparked a huge upswing in such stuff, amplifying vaccine resistance, as TVNZ's Katie Bradford noted on One News last weekend. Organisation warns about the infodemic, inaccurate information spreading as fast as the pandemic. And the biggest platforms hosting and amplifying the misinformation mostly can't be bothered to flag it as such or don't want to, let alone remove it. 
So when Rupert Murdoch's 24-hour news channel Sky News Australia was suspended recently for one week by YouTube, it was pretty humiliating for what is supposed to be a credible news channel. Now the problem was misleading COVID stuff spouted on air by the hosts, and they're still doing it. Last Monday, the Sky News Australia website carried the headline, Jacinda Ardern has full control of the New Zealand media, though the words full control were in quotes. So who was the source of the claim? Our next guest is Chantelle Baker, who is a political commentator from New Zealand and was an active campaigner during the last election for the New Conservatives. Now, that show is called The Outsiders, and Sky and Straya strayed well outside the mainstream for Chantelle Baker. She's an energetic contributor to Facebook pages carrying anti-vax content, but having been picked as a political commentator from New Zealand by Sky News Australia last weekend, they asked Chantelle Baker this... Are you living in this weird sort of one-party state where you're just simply not allowed to criticise dear leader? Well, I would say that it's that old saying of control the information, control the minds. And what they've got at the moment is a full control of the media. So Jacinda's paid huge amounts. There's been hundreds of millions that have been paid out for the media to try and sustain them and keep them alive. And the issue with that is that now we've got a media that is pretty much demonstrated that they will only push forward promotion of Jacinda and promotion of her ideological ideas. Now it is true the government here gives hundreds of millions to the media each year to sustain them. It's getting towards $300 million a year now in various ways. And it's also true this government is giving more now to a wider range of media and that this has caused some to question whether their financial and editorial independence could be compromised. But in the past, governments with very different ideological ideas, as Chantelle Baker put it, have also paid out hundreds of millions in public funding for our publicly and privately owned media. And anyone honestly telling an offshore audience about how things are here should certainly acknowledge there's been plenty of criticism of the government and the media on the issues that the Outsiders Aussie hosts specifically asked about. Runaway house price inflation, the Kiwi Build calamity and slow vaccination rates until now. But while Sky News in Australia tracked her down to claim our PM enjoys our media's compliance, ZB's Mike Hosking last Tuesday seized on another low-grade Aussie news outlet to hint at the same thing. The front page of one of the Australian papers yesterday had the lead story there for a while, lead story, biggest story going, under the headline, Jacinda Ardern slammed for pushing sign language interpreter out of view. But no Australian newspaper had a lead story about the Prime Minister shoving a sign language interpreter. What Mike Hosking was talking about there was a piece of flimsy clickbait from the Daily Mail Australia, notorious across the ditch for beating up and flagrantly plagiarising other Aussie outlet stories with minimal attribution, if any. Now this beat-up, though, appeared to be all its own work, but no other news outlet over there was as interested at that point as Mike Hosking. She slams into the sign writer, the sign interpreter. And keeps backing on in, and this woman's completely shunted out of view. It's the most astonishing thing you've ever seen. Well, actually, that was one of the least astonishing things Media Watch saw that morning. One person bumping into another one, making room for someone else, and then apologising almost immediately. But Mike Hosking carried on echoing the Daily Mail's take. Then from behind the Prime Minister comes the sign interpreter, who gives her the filthiest look you've ever seen. Now, where is that? to be found in the New Zealand media. The story was not in our media because there was literally nothing to see and what Mike's mind saw as a filthy look was merely fleeting surprise that you needed slow-mo to spot. Though Mike reckoned it was all about media control and compliance. Why is it in Australia, on the front page, 
and it's not in any of the New Zealand media, unless, of course, they don't do that stuff anymore because it might embarrass the Prime Minister. Exactly. But what this really showed was not Ardern's power over our news media, but the influence of Daily Mail clickbait. CNN picked up the story after that and debunked it. Critics of the Prime Minister pounced. What a rude bleep. Out of my way, peasant. But they seem to ignore the Prime Minister's exclamation of surprise, followed by an apologetic smile. Commenters noted she clearly didn't mean to do this, and there was literally not a single push. But just the day before the tale of the Prime Minister's barging, which our media didn't touch with a barge pole, Mike Hosking was telling his listeners, in times like these, we need media telling truth to power. The tragedy with the state of the media these days is, one, not enough hard questions are being asked anymore, and two, too many journalists are too young because the pay's ordinary and the prospects aren't flashed, so they don't have either the gonads to go hard or the institutional knowledge to truly dig in and get detailed. And without the gonads to go hard on hard questions, he said, politicians and officials are saying any old rubbish these days and getting away with it. We're in lockdown because of fear around hospital capacity. We're in lockdown because we are slow on the vaccine and didn't use tools like saliva testing when we should have. Thus, these issues are critical, and therefore the truth is imperative. And if the truth is so easily muddied and so hard to access, if we are led by spinners and BSs, what hope have we? But sometimes it's public figures who do know what they're talking about who call out the BSs in the media. It wouldn't matter if we had 10 times as many ICU But, but, but they are. Rob, they are. No, they're Singapore's not. Singapore's coping with it. Singapore's coping with it right now. Singapore isn't right now. Singapore, the, Singapore is coping with it right now. They're, they're tight, coping. but they're not Singapore overwhelmed. New South Wales isn't new... overwhelmed. Victoria's not hey, overwhelmed. Not true. Last Tuesday, Dr Rod Jackson told Mike Hosking a thing or two about that very issue of ICU capacity. You had the media full of nurses and doctors saying, oh, my God, this is going to be a Mike, disaster. Mike, you have no idea of what it's like to work in a hospital. Have mm. you ever worked in a hospital? No, of course I've not worked no, in a hospital. Of course you but, haven't, but we have. But why what I know, listen, here's what I know. people listen to us? Have you ever been in hospital? No. Seems, though, it's not just the young and poorly paid journos who have trouble with spin and BS in our media. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Midweek Media Watch on Lately with Karen Hay, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.